This is Bill Boyshell, and you're listening to Paper Guys. Thanks, Bill. That was great. <laughs> so, Bill, we're here at Copacetic Comics, which is called a comic store. It's right there in the title. But I feel like this is so much more than just a comic store. It's always felt like walking to Copacetic Comics is kind of like walking into your brain as there's those comics, there's books, there's records, there's CDs. Well, that's very true, of course. Um, you know, I tend to call Copacetic, you know, a book, a specialty bookstore that specializes in comics. Yeah. Because that's sort of our focus in the way it's run is more along the lines of, of, of a bookstore. But, of course, then we also sell um, film on DVD, music on CD. And then we have, you know, we focus on artworks primarily in the book form. A lot of people come in and see all the prints on the wall. Like, oh, do you sell those? And I'm like, and I'm like, not really, except for a few, because it's so hard to display, you know, to the yeah. whole retail aspect of that. But, um, and so, uh, but the one thing that we're probably one of the, we, one of the very, very few, and I'm sure at one point we were the only uh, store in North America with the word comics in their name that doesn't have a diamond account. Like, we're not part of the direct market. And, um. And so, uh, you know, as far as the retail goes, it w I've always been kind of bifurcated in that I get our books and book form comics through the book trade, you know, as often as possible directly uh -huh. from the publishers. And then all the, and then, but our big focus that distinguishes us from almost all other comic stores is our focus on small press, self-published, um, you know, handmade comics. Now, of course, that was at our remit when I, from starting in 2000, you know, yeah. when I created the, the business model for this store and flash you know for fast forward 19 years to today and many stores now you know focus and carry small press and self-published and handmade yeah. comics but so in 2000 very few stores did it was mostly people who you know sold directly their own comics or there were a few online presidents like the presence like the uss catastrophe that um dan zatwalk and kevin heisinger did and then you know, John Porcellino, of course, you know, he had spit and a half going all the way back to the late 90s, I think, and then he took a hiatus and then came back. So there's been a handful of people, but they generally didn't have storefronts, you know, but yeah. that's changed now. Now a lot of people do. So just so people know what the direct market is, what is Diamond and okay. why would a store want to be involved with that? Well, again, I'll try to do as brief as possible. You know, comics were up till 1974 always distributed along with magazines through the newsstand distribution network you know the same people who distributed time magazine and life magazine and all the gazillion magazines on a newsstand also distributed comics um and they were all distributed on a returnable basis but and you know they would strip off the covers and send them back but then they had a you know relatively low discount you know you know roughly hovering around you know 25 30 percent i guess 30 percent is probably standard yeah. and then um however in the late 60s you know stores started opening up selling old back issue comics and um and there was a collector market started to emerge where people would like actually go to a store just to find old comics and that was you know again there had been conventions and people selling them through the mail but stores actually opened that could just survive selling old comics and a guy named phil suling in new york city came up with the you know the simple idea of like hey what if these stores that want to keep the old comics and don't want to rip, rip the cover off and send them back because they feel they have a, a longer shelf life and not only that but might go up in value yeah um with what if we went to marvel and dc who are you know and others but those are the big two at that point uh and said what if we buy the comics 
non-returnable in exchange for a bigger discount. And then, so in other words, when we order the comics, whatever we order, you're guaranteed that money. Yeah. You know, and that was people were like, hey, hmm, that's quite an idea you have there. And then, you know, that was, it's real simple. That yeah. changed the whole history of comics because then they said yes. And, and, of, and the one fact I'm leaving out is that during that, right at that time in 74 and 75, you know, the, the market for newsstand comics had started to decline. Especially DC was, you know, really worried. The sales through the newsstands were lowering. I mean, Marvel had taken a huge amount of market share, but in the '70s, it had they had started, you know, to dip. Although Archie's and Richie Riches, you know, were kind of the ones that were selling. Again, it, it's kind of complicated to go into, but there was a, a trend of decline. Yeah. You know, no, you know, not pronounced but noticeable, and so that, you know, was a, a motivator for the Marvel and DC to accept that offer. And it was gradual at first, obviously, because it just started from nothing. And I mean, I got into my first order from Phil Sterling would have been 1976, maybe early 77. I can't remember. Okay. And um, and so it was real gradual. But first it was just Phil Sterling, and then like there was you know a few other companies started to come in, and there was um, uh, I remember I mean Bud Plant did a little bit of comics, but not I don't know if they did Marvel and DC. And then there was one in the DC area called New Media Urjax, which I worked with, and then they got bought out by Diamond okay. um, later. Yeah, now and then Diamond that, is kind of like yeah, and then the Diamond game. you know slowly merges. A very long story. At one point there was like a dozen small distributors all competing, and there were regional ones. There were some in Canada. Yeah. They were all over the place. But then just like anything, you know, there was a blow up, whole bunch of people competing. And then there was a shakeout, and then you know Phil Suling changed his name to Seagate, and then, but even they went under, and then and then there was a big shakeout. Again, I, it gets too complicated. And then there was at the end of the day there were two Diamond and Capital, um, and then there was another big shakeout in the right around '95, and that's when I closed my old store, Bem. And then it's again to make a long story short, Capital went under, and it was only Diamond. And so Diamond has kind of had a monopoly on the comic book direct market for over 20 years now which is unusual like if comics were bigger there would have been like an antitrust filed or something because yeah. it's just diamond but um and so when i opened copacetic and i had a five-year hiatus where i stayed home after selling my old store and it was like more or less mr mom yeah. and um and then during that exact period between 95 and 2000 the internet came into being and sort of changed everything as far as retail goes and um and so i realized you know whatever i moved into would have to have an internet component like i was barely you know i was like you know not super on top of the internet or computing or anything like that yeah i just knew enough that i would have to do something and so it was a steep learning curve for me to figure out like what's going on what's happening what do i do how do i use the internet but more than anything i saw how the direct market had kind of imploded and I felt that what had been happening gradually and then would continue to happen in my opinion you know at that time was that there was this kind of death spiral for comics in the direct market and that you know a there was only one distributor so they were the gateway through which everything had to go yeah B the comic book stores were sold just comic books and so the people who would be going to a comic book store only people for the most part, who you know were already interested in comics, already were buying comics, or might come in for a special like Death of Superman or yeah. something like that, 
um, but we're comic book, you know, you, you know, you, it was like a, a chicken and the egg thing. Like, you know, why would you go to the comic book store unless you're into comics, but unless, you know, your friend brings you, but you're not going to just go in. And then there was a, you know, there was the kind of, uh, 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 reputation or how do you have it, uh, of like, if you, everybody, most people probably know it from the record stores, like high fidelity, where there was kind of like this off standoffish of where everybody's just like, huh, you're not a comic fan. Like, I'm not going to talk to you, you know, that yeah. kind of, and so there was a little bit of that. And of course, not all comic stores are like that. And there's a great variety, but there was a, 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 a little bit of a, uh, of a reputation tendency towards that. And so when I was coming back into comics, I wanted to create a, a, a new approach and I wanted to put comics in the context of culture at large. And that was my general mm -hmm. main concept was, okay, I'm gonna, I view comics as a medium of expression, not as a way to sell superheroes. You know, not as, you know, people often conflate form with genre. You know, a lot of people say, like, oh, comics are a genre. I'm like, no, they're not. They're a yeah, form. They're, yeah. Yeah, but some people say that because they so closely associate comics with superheroes. You know, but of course, even, you know, superheroes, you know, are the most prevalent now. But in the history of comics, there's been everything. And at yeah. one point, romance comics were the best-selling comics. And, and arguably, during their peak, romance comics was the most successful genre there was. You know, but then of course there are funny animal comics with all the Walt Disney and the Looney Tunes and all. You know, there's a huge variety. And then of course during the, you know, back in before television, you know, in the in, in the late '40s, early '50s, there was you know westerns, detective, science fiction, and you know, and you know many many other forms. You know, war comics. You know, you, you name yeah. it. You know, and those sort of all transitioned to television. You know, once that became the dominant form. But people, it's hard for people to grasp that before 19 mid 50s you know there wasn't really television yeah. the way we know it there was just there might have been a teeny bit but it was a novelty you know and so comics were like where people got that kind of genre and the kind of story and, yeah, the, and comics pulps. and pulp fiction yeah and, and, and radio shows yeah not television and so comics were very vital you know and again the, the, the rise of television directly coincided with the imposition of the comics code which sort of crushed comics and you know I've always had you know there's a little bit you know it's a whole nother topic but Anyway, so I said, comics, let's put comics in the context of literature, poetry, art, film, and music, and, then, and comics. Like, let's put it where they're all treated the same, with the same yeah. degree of respect, with the same degree of attention to curation and, 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 and quality, and try to find things in all mediums that would appeal to the customer base, which, of course, is all going through the filter of my tastes and brain and experience, you know, because it's all pretty much all the decisions are made by myself but that said I've always listened to the customers because the customers are attracted to the kind of thing that I'm selling and you know oftentimes have you know very good pointers and suggestions like oh do you know this or that and sometimes I'll be like no thank you yeah you know, so a way to collect more yeah and so like that becomes a virtuous circle just like if you're you know you're a teacher like oftentimes in teaching somebody will say something that is germane to what you're doing and you're like I never thought of that before I mean yeah you know and then you you know totally happens and, and as long as you're paying attention and listening and open you know you can learn from your customers or students or what have you and so so your old store how long was that open for I mean before? for the one prior to copacetic yeah it was called I mean I you know technically copacetic is my third business my first was Asgard books which was just a yeah. cheesy comic book store and I started in Where 77 and I started in DC but it wasn't okay. a store I'm sorry it was a business I sold only at conventions and through mail order but before the internet there was a publication called the comics that wait it was no it was called the buyer's guide for comics fandom uh -huh. and it was basically what's known as an ad zine 
all that was in it, or 99% of it was just ads for people selling their comics. And there's, you know, magazines, you know, there were newspapers that were like that for other interests. I'm sure there was something for stamps and for pulps. And I know there was yeah. one for 16 millimeter film and one for records. Cause I, something like, what was gold mine? And then like for records, I think it was the newspaper. And then the, the, the there was something called real to real or gold. Re or, well, I can't even remember. I can't remember, but it was for 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter films. Cause I collected those too. Cause I'm a nut. Um, and so that was the newspaper. And so, you know, before the internet, that's how you did it. So I would go to sh conventions. There were conventions every weekend somewhere. I mean, yeah. always from by the by the time I got started in the mid seventies. So was, you're really like traveling. Every yeah, weekend. yeah, exactly. I mean, there was lots of shows that would be in certain cities. Like a lot of cities would have like shows like three or four times a year, like re you know, small ones. And then there were big ones and then it, it grew and grew and grew. But if in the Eastern region, I sort of dealt comics primarily from you know, New York to Atlanta to Ohio, like that triangle, that was kind of mm -hmm. my range. And, um, and so there was always conventions. Then I moved to Pittsburgh and, um, what year was that? 78. Okay. And, um, and I ran my own show called Cosmic Con. Again, you know, this was way back, you know, so <laughs> I, you know, I had like Silver Surfer in the, po in the, in the poster. You know? Yeah. And that I did until I took, and then for the one hiatus I had from comics was when I was the ex director of the exhibitions program at Pittsburgh Filmmakers from 82 to 84. So that oh, was okay. one period, oh, wow. you know, I um, really wasn't very active in comics and I was sort of on the verge of giving up. But during that exact period, Love and Rockets came out and it was like, and, and that was the main thing. But then, you know, there was a couple other things like I think Frank Miller's Ronin might have come out in 84 in American Flag and the Flaming Carrot, which I had actually come out earlier. I had encountered that in a zine and one of the Atlanta shows where it originated. But, the, you know, the big, big impetus for me was Love and Rockets because it was so totally different. It was sort of just like a, you know, like a, a sign. You know, it was, you know, Love and Rockets was like sweet generous. It was a whole new way of doing yeah. comics. What year but, did that start coming out? I mean, it was 82. Okay. I mean, but I didn't discover it until 83. Um, so... You were running the, the Cosmic Con for a while, and that was based in Pittsburgh? Yeah, yeah, Monroeville, actually. Oh, wow. And um, there was a hotel in Monroeville. Um, and so, I just did that through 81. I think 81 was must have been the last one I ran. Like, I think I did it 79, 80, and 81 I ran that show. And it was probably like two or three times a year. So similar to the idea of confusing genre and form, I feel like many people have an idea of what comic conventions are based off of what like San Diego Comic Con well, is now. So what was well, Comic Con now? Obviously, is like really media con. Back in, yeah, in, back in the seventies, it was really just people selling, like myself, dealers. You know, selling back issue comics and hot new issues and and things like that. And then also there were some small press people. People would do portfolios was a big thing. Like uh -huh. you know, because it was like popular artists. I mean, the one that I remember most distinctly was Bernie Wrightson had his Frankenstein. He was did three portfolios to support himself while he was doing his deluxe illustrated version of Frankenstein which never materialized the way he wanted one of the great tragedies but I mean like Barry Smith's portfolios and posters and prints from uh -huh. Blimey Press were huge and then there were also a few archival things this one guy these guys in New England I remember they did a Wrightson book and then they did a Basil Wolverton book and you know where a lot of people were doing portfolios also which we I definitely sold and posters back then because there was just a demand for and t-shirts but less so t-shirts more came later in the 80s um that's the style of comic conventions that got me really hooked in comics when I was younger, is the just the resellers or the yeah, but that's what they all pretty much were. But then the big yeah. draw, you'd have a guest artist like the, you mm -hmm. know the bigger the show, the bigger the names. Like if you were, like if the shows that 
I did in Pittsburgh Cosmicon were too little to have. I just had my friend Tom Grinberg was all, who drew, you know, he was an artist and he would be like the guest, you know. Like we didn't yeah. have now in DC I ran one and we had Walt Simonson and oh, Don wow. McGregor as guests and like I invited Craig Russell but then he didn't make it for some reason. Um, I forget exactly. But anyway, so that was uh, that was big to have, you know, for me. I was really young. I got in it. But Walt Simonson his parents lived near where in DC and that was what got him and Don McGregor, I can't remember, you know, exactly what, you know, but he came, and then they, they were pretty, you know, relatively big, I mean, Walt Simonson became much bigger later when he did Thor, but he had done the, within the industry, he was very well respected at that time for, he did this series called Manhunter, which, yeah. if you're a comics artist, everybody who's a comics artist, like, well, Manhunter, that changed the game, you know, he did all these innovations, um, and McGregor was famous, he, he like, he did, like, he was, he was a real pasty-faced white guy, but he loved to draw, like, real masculine black characters like this was one of those intriguing things that you can do in comics yeah. with your identity like he did Black Panther and Saber um, and you know interesting guy I mean good writer for sure and he did Kill Raven with Craig Russell I think that's why we invited them both but Craig didn't show up he was from Ohio um, anyway so but yeah some of the guests you know like with the big shows in New York would have like Bernie Wrightson Barry Smith Michael yeah. Lino, Neil Adams you know or Kurt you know and of course back in the 60s it was Stanley and Jack Kirby were the super big draws but by then they were with time I do, Kirby had moved to uh, California yeah. at that point, and so he rarely went to shows. And uh, I mean, San Diego Con was held because that's near where Jack lived, and it was because of <laughs> like I had a guy come in here who lives in Pittsburgh now, who was one of the kids who hung out with Kirby then, and was oh, you know no way. vaguely. I mean, he was too young; he wasn't the motor. Shell Dorf was the main guy, but he was one of the kids who helped nurture the early San Diego Con, and it was just there as like a providing their elemental, you know force to the yeah. launching of it you know and yeah he was in Pittsburgh he just walked into the store and we started talking and I'm like oh my god you know so uh, what and his, his cards right here Barry Alphonse oh well. um, <laughs> so what brought you to Pittsburgh why did you CMU I went to CMU okay and my grandparents lived here my mother's parents and so that was part of it is they were elderly and lived very close to CMU and so I stayed with them um as like a person to help around the house and like, while I was there like my grandfather died not long after and then my grandmother died in 82 okay. um, and so so I it was a you know mutually beneficial theory you know I got a place to stay for free and then yeah. I helped out you know there with them and so that was part of the you know part of the reason why going to Pittsburgh you know. and what did you study at CMU physics oh wow <laughs> but then I, I realized right you know, after <laughs> one year I was like what am I doing um, you know, I didn't. I I only went to CMU for one year because I was like, I they were like really. I don't know. You went to CMU, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was super narrow. Like I had to only, I had to struggle to take anything out of their predetermined thing. Like I wanted to take creative writing, and like no, you only have to, you have to take this kind of writing that you know for for you know science writing that would be appropriate. And then I wanted to take a literature class, and like and they're like no, no, no. And I lobbied, and I got it, and I really, really liked it. It was this Beekman Cottrell, I think, and he died relatively yeah. recently. I mean, he might have not been around still when you were there, but um, and then I just transferred to Pitt, you know, because like, and then it was also there was money, it was an issue to some degree in Pitt. I lobbied to be considered a Pennsylvania resident because um, I had lived here for a year, and yeah. I had to say like I intend to stay, and like you know, even though I wasn't sure I was, of course it, I did. But you're still here. Yeah, and so like their decision to accept my residency status benefit of Pittsburgh I hope you know by my staying here but hey, I mean back then it was like $49 a credit was when I was charged yeah. in Pitt and so that was pretty darn cheap and so like I could just sell comics and pay for my 
Okay, so you were running the... Uh, yeah, I was still selling, yeah, I was just still doing yeah, all school. that stuff while I was there. Wow. Um, yeah, the whole same time. And that was, yeah, and so, like, again, the only reason I, I mean, I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do when I was in high school. You know, I was really into comics and, and photography, and that merged later into my interest in film, which was what I studied at Pitt, and eventually um, with Dana Poland was my big uh, mentor influence in that. And um, that was when the, you know, Lucy Fisher set, you know, was the guiding force behind the whole Pitt Film Studies, but um, it was still part of the English department, you know, but it had a pretty good rep among universities as being a strong department. And eventually yeah. she established it as an independent department after like God knows probably took her 20 years um, and it's so, always interesting to me because then the film studies you know I was there obviously not at the very beginning but relatively early on and now you know it's comic studies are starting to come up yeah. following a similar path you know where it was just like studying comics that's ludicrous you know and now it's like oh yeah and then I met this Mark Best was a pit professor who came into my class and he was the first person I ever met who got his doctorate in like writing and his thesis was on comics. You know? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that's amazing. Um, and, you know, he teaches primarily film, but he's taught film and comics. And I'm not sure if he's taught us. There's a little bit of a link between the two. Yeah. Oh, yeah, like, for well, sure. The, well, I mean, the, 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 the skill set's identical. Comics. Yeah. I mean, because when I was doing film studies, I would talk to people I'm like, this stuff applies totally 100% to film. You can transfer it all. But at that time, people were like, comics, you know, it was just too crazy to, yeah. people couldn't, you know, get over their preconceptions of, you know, comics being stupid. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, all the same toolkit that, you know, from literary studies that transferred to film can transfer to comics that totally all works. And so that was probably my distinct, what I brought to the world of comics was that film studies, you know, li you know linguistics, literary studies mindset. I had it in comics as of, you know, the early 80s, yeah. probably, all, I mean, I'm sure I obviously wasn't the only person, but not very many people were thinking that way about comics, you know, 40 years ago. It was also really ago. interesting that you were, had one foot in each field, right? The yeah. district filmmakers and... Yeah, the... yeah, exactly, yeah. Oh, right, for sure. Like, yeah, I mean, I thought, you know, at some point, okay, like, even I was like, okay, I gotta go into film comics, forget it, you know, but then Love yeah. and Rockets changed my mind, you know, wow. I mean, so, I mean, honestly, I mean, there was other stuff, too. I mean, there was other ones that I was interested in, but Love Marcus clearly stands out, and they stood the test of time. Like they were the ones that everyone followed and created the new. Yeah, like this store. And they're still told. releasing. Yeah, Love yeah. Marcus oh, yeah. Now. The new one just came out. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, yeah. I mean, this store almost 100% wouldn't exist. I mean, you know, Bem was named partially after the first story, not the first story, but the major story in the first issue of Love and Rockets. I mean, I was aware and employed the term Bem prior to Gilbert's using it, but I was on the same page as him, like what he was trying to say by titling it that, because it was sort of like a grassroots understanding of the formulaic nature of pulp narrative you know yeah. that, that everything's the same it's just a different bug-eyed monster you know the, the syntic mag axis is always identical it's just the paradigm just goes boom, uh -huh. boom, you just pop it in and then and the fact that it had this kind of acronym that was created by fans indicated that fans have an intuitive understanding you know that you, know, you don't have to have a phd you could still grasp these kind of concepts on an intuitive level yeah. so um, so did you start uh, BEM while BEM, you were at Filmmakers? No, I left Filmmakers because, like, 84 was when all, you know, Reagan, like, mm -hmm. you know, was cemented. Like, they sort of axed, I don't know exactly the particulars, but they definitely cut NEA funding and sort of set a, sent a ripple through public funding of the arts. Like, yeah. 84, all the media centers in North America 
it's very interesting. This is a whole nother side topic, but they kind of almost all started around 1971, and that was sort of like the institutionalization of the 60s counterculture. They were like, we'll have independent media. That's important. Uh-huh. People understood that, you know, film and video in particular, but then, you know, were a, an important thing to have as an art form and independent, you know, community based, you know, I mean, and I'm sure it kind of connected, you know, tangentially to, um, cable, you know, local cable, you know, but this was yeah. people, you know, there was probably some vague connection, but, you know, alliance form. But the main thing was like, we need people to understand and be able to make independent media that's funding worthy. And, you know, Sally Dixon was the main driver here in Pittsburgh who worked at the Carnegie Museum and she helped, you know, get the Pittsburgh filmmakers off the ground, but it was to bring Stan Brackage to Pittsburgh and he filmed the Pittsburgh trilogy in 71. Yeah. And so, but then a lot of, I'd only discovered later when I would, you know, when I was in my tenure there and talking to a lot of people like, oh, wow, they all seem to start around 71. And then they all had the same funding crisis in 84. Yeah. And um, when the fundings were cut and then everybody sort of had to reorient towards private foundation money and at filmmakers, they, you know, it was, it was kind of like the uh, pivoting point. And um, there was a, you know, I, I had, I was in the minority of the direction for it to go in. I was like back in horse A, but horse B won. Yeah. And so they went this way and the person they hired to oversee it, I just didn't, you know, it was like saying oil and water or whatever. It just couldn't, we couldn't congeal. And it was like a mutually agreed, like, okay, I'm leaving. You know, it yeah. wasn't going to work. And so like, well, now what do I do? And so like, I just decided to, you know, for Ben was then, bringing in my whole toolkit from film studies and Pittsburgh filmmakers to do it in comics. Yeah. And that was BEM. And BEM started out as a one year of monthly shows that I ran in Oakland and it was called Transfer. And then I did a monthly comic called Transformer that we gave away at each show. And that was bringing my filmmakers things like I can't just sell stuff like we have to promote making things. Yeah. That came from you know, my experience with filmmakers, because they had like the public screenings, you know, of free screenings of local filmmakers. Um, I, I, you know, they had it. I mean, they later became called the Film Kitchen, but back then, I, I think they might have just been called public screenings, but they might have been another word anyway. And I had my film shown in that, and I was like, it was really a positive experience to have my film yeah. shown to an audience. And so I was like, I want to do that for comics. And so, you know, when you went to the show, you know, obviously there were the exhibitors selling the stuff and then everybody got a comic that we made that month it was the ultimate deadline like it had to be there at that show (laughs) so like i really experienced the crushing deadline like i never slept like i was always up for at least 48 hours right too because like people obviously didn't always turn in their submissions so i would just draw something and fill in the 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 pages and then i have to go to kinko's at 3 a.m and print it and then come home and then staple it staple and then get in the van (laughs) and go to the show um it was like that every single time so how many people would be in Transformer every issue that you were? Oh, on? probably anywhere. I'm trying to think of the minimum number. I that's a good question. I'm not going to have the exact answer. Probably yeah, yeah. between six and ten people in each issue. Okay. I'm guessing that's, but it's something like that. I mean. And what was the print runs for that? Well, they dropped at the beginning. I mean, I mean, we probably it was, it was roughly two hundred, and then towards the end it was probably closer to one hundred. I mean, yeah. So that's it might have been. I can't remember, but it was you know it was around. I mean, one issue I think we printed five hundred of, and that was stupid. You know, it was way too many. Yeah. Um, I still have them. You know, <laughs> what was I thinking? Um, so Ben was 
the Bem was like the umbrella show. organization, so yeah. yeah, it was called. And then also at this, I have to say, we also showed movies at the end because I was oh, still interested. Right. So it was, yeah. it was called the Transformer, the monthly show of comics, science fiction, and film. I was always nice. still interested in science fiction back then. You know, so comics and science fiction kind of went hand in hand to some degree, you know, to some degree. And so, but I put film in it, and then we showed like I always showed one feature and one nutty short. Like I remember, like. <laughs> One of the ones that you know, my one of my favorites was I showed, I got my hands on George Lucas's student THX 1138 and paired it with Alphaville, which obviously it was based on. Oh, and wow. so I was just like, you know, when in, in the history of, of film of Pittsburgh, did anyone else ever show THX 1138 student film with Alphaville? Maybe not. Yeah. The only time that might have ever happened. I mean, maybe somebody showed it in a class, but like to my knowledge, I was like, look there, you know. And then I did other things. Like, that's the only one that really sticks out in my mind. But that was my favorite pairing. I yeah, but I did other things. I I, I showed crazy stuff. At, 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 like I might have showed last year at Marion Bad. You know, like you know, I, I, you know, with something nutty. I mean, I I can't remember anymore. But that you know that that was I did that too. And uh, that's such a grind to be doing the show every every month. Well, but that's but it was a grind. Day. But that was also my source of income. Yeah, yeah. And so like I set up there. I sold comics. I got money from the other dealers that set up. And then I was also at that point selling again through the buyer's guide. And it was. I was like getting by by the skin of my teeth. But there wasn't a physical location. No, point. but then I realized like, I mean, I was living in a warehouse. I mean, that was my favorite thing. I lived in a warehouse and it had a conveyor <laughs> belt. And so I loved doing the shit. When I did, I did other conventions too, not just my own. You know, I would go to other cities yeah. and do other shows at the same time. You know, but, you know, it was, I had a loading dock and a conveyor belt. And so it was like when it was wow. time to do the show, I'd just be like, I would load up and okay, you up there? I'm like, okay, and then I just go, and then I would just load the boxes on the conveyor belt, and the guy would be up there putting it in the van. It was just, it was so much fun because it was like that's real business. It's just like having your own, you yeah. know, company. Where is the warehouse? In Wilkesburg, also. Okay. Um, but then you know, basically, I wasn't supposed to be living there, and they were sort of pressuring me. Like they were, the landlords were decent. They know, like you know, you're not supposed to be living here. They kind of turned a blind eye to it, but they were kind of pressing me to leave without actually throwing me out. Yeah. And then at the same time, I was. You know, it was just a minor miracle that I managed to get the rent every month. You know, there were months where like I don't have the money, and then somebody were like, "I need some comics, comic compensate." You know, literally the day I had to pay the rent. Um, and then so I opened up, you know, just a couple blocks away, where Ben was on, um, right by the busway, and that was I, you know, I, I always believe in public transportation, so it was right yeah. back then the the Martin Luther King, you know, East Busway, ended at Wilkesburg. My shop was right where it terminated. It was on South. Okay. I was across the street from one day, which was funny because that's where uh, film processing that filmmakers people would use. Yeah. So and I was there for ten years. Well, nine years. I mean, one year in the warehouse, nine years in the store, and then I closed that and sold the business, you know, to Phantom, and um, and then opened up Copacetic. And, you know, I didn't I physically open Copacetic until two thousand one, the but then I would conceptualize it in two thousand. So when. When you set up Copacetic, we were talking about a little bit the focus for Copacetic, but how, like, what steps did you take to try to delineate the focus of BEM and the old business and the new business being Copacetic? I mean, to draw, I mean, when you say delineate, I'm not sure I guess what you more mean. More for you personally, like, what was, what, what, were the, what were the differences in focus? Well, I mean, the two? main, I mean, BEM. While I, of course, I've always in my whole career like focused on you know trying to get you know independence of like you know with them like my big thing was like fanographics you know we you know our big push was like Love and Rockets and then later you know like there was Lloyd Llewellyn and mm -hmm. Neat Stuff and then Eight Ball and Hate and then 
uh, yummy fur, and you know, and then there was flaming carrot and 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 dirty pot and those kind of things where we really really pushed that, and that was a big like you know, if you were can be considered a member of the Bem Cognoscenti, you had to be like partaking, but. Our, we still sold tons of like our number one seller almost throughout the entirety of them was X-Men you know although there was a brief you know then Batman of course like Dark Knight and you know when Frank Miller's Dark Knight and, and then you know Alan Moore's Watchmen and then you know but like Frank Miller was a huge huge seller outside of X-Men I mean like because the Dark Knight Batman Year One Electro Assassin the Daredevil yeah um, and then um, Alan Moore's stuff uh, and then the Killing Joke and all that. So we sold, you know, but those in terms of raw dollars brought in more than than the stuff that. But we actively promoted as much as possible, you know, the independent comics that were creator owned even then. And we also sold science fiction. We had a big science fiction book section that, that yeah. I did in Coots with one of my buddies. And then we also sold like interesting alternative magazines. We sold a lot of research, like. You know that when I'm talking about that research publications that did like J.G. Ballard and the Modern oh, Primitives, okay. and, yeah, and we sold tons of those. I mean, and things along those lines. I had an account with Last Gasp. I can't remember, you know, why Jack Harley. You know, I sold Undergrounds, and then as I, after a few years of being in the Wilkinsburg location, you know, I started, you know, I realized like there's nothing in Wilkinsburg. You know, I'm the only culture, and I started selling. I had an African American bookstore, a book section, and I yeah. sold. Like by far the number one best-selling thing I had was the autobiography of Malcolm X. Like we just sold endlessly, but then we sold other books, Malcolm X's speeches, and then we also s- sold Zora Neale Hurston when she was still back then. It was like being published by the University of Indiana, I think, oh, or it was a university press. And then while I was there, like the Renaissance in her began, and um, um, and uh, Harper, I think, took it over. You know, their eyes were watching God, and and, and then you know we always sold her work and then we all I also was really into you know, Jim Thompson and Black Lizard Prescott founded primarily to it was David Goodis who he is uh, not David Goodis I'm saying he was another one published by Black Lizard Press wait why am I having my brain aneurysm um oh my god well the guy it'll come to me the guy who founded Black Lizard Press also invented the oral biography to Jack's book of Jack uh-huh. and then he wrote Wild at Heart with, with David Lynch, but he founded Black Lizard Press, and the big thing they did was republish all the Jim Thompson books. And I was a super fan of Jim Thompson. Wow. Um, you know, I had just randomly discovered him by getting a book for a dime, and like this is incredible. And so we sold tons and tons of Jim Thompson. Like again, the thing was, we had these certain things that no one else in Pittsburgh was selling initially. Of course, people did later. I'm sure I'd started carrying the researches. Yeah. But you know, but but we sold a ton of them, um, and other things like that that I'm just not remembering. We sold raw, you know. Just you know, funky, weird magazines. Anything that I looked at that seemed cool, you know. And then we sold like Maximum Rock and Roll and, and, and Forced Exposure and you know other things. But we, you know, the only music I sold at BEM was local music. Yeah. You know, um, you know. That's one of the things I really appreciated with Copacetic because of your local focus. And obviously, by selling things online, having the the online marketplace, you have national reach from out here in Pittsburgh. Well, international. We sell yeah, all yeah. over the world. Um, but you have always been super supportive of local creators, writers, and artists. Right. And it's like some of my first zines were sold. Yeah, yeah, we sold yeah. 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 Well, that was always been well. I mean, because obviously, I mean, just like small presses and self-published has been my focus. And of course, you know, the most obvious is people that you know or that come in that your customers and who publish something. Like, of course, I'm going to say yes. And then, you know, yeah. then, and then you know, I. But you know, I've also 
encouraged people to produce stuff and been supportive and in it them you know i continued publishing transformer after the show stopped but i yeah. no longer did it monthly i did it quarterly for another two years okay. and then i published no comics only two issues and that was frank santoro's first published work was no comics number one and two. Oh wow and then and he and there was other people you know tom reynolds and 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 rick mays who all still live in pittsburgh you know you know and rick went on to a successful career with marvel dc and and, and, and he did some work i'm not sure if he i can't you were saying that frank even uh works at the store a couple of days yeah he helps yeah. out here you know he was gone for a long time just that's fairly recently yeah you know but you know but yeah i mean he's helped on and off but most you know more recently um which is great you know i always need a little bit of help and so it's and um, uh, anyway, yeah. So I was saying, so I was publishing locals, even at BEM. Is yeah. what I was trying to say. I was actually actively publishing them beyond because there was no, like people, like the, the, the self-publishing thing hadn't really. This was the '80s, you know. Yeah. Um, and there really wasn't. There was tiny, you know, that concept of publishing your own comic, and you know, was kind of just wasn't in people's minds yet. And so, I mean, then when by the time Copacetic opened in 2000, I mean, that's like you know, 15 years later, you know, then people were obviously, during the 90s, it sort of became more prevalent of people self-publishing their own comics. It started like with Portolino, I think, was like the leader there. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so then I was just really encouraging people to do that. But I haven't published anybody, I haven't actually been a publisher under the copacetic people often say that all the time like, like maybe but I just never do you know? yeah um, but I feel like I've been supportive and of course we ran picks you know yeah and that was another way of being supportive is picks still happening not really I mean because yeah. it was like I ran it you know I and ran it but then it, it was under the aegis of show. the Toonsium because they oh, were a non-profit and so you know and there were people from the Toonsium you know helped to varying degrees but you know it was primarily you know I was the one who ran the show and what years were those running? 2010 away through 2017 was okay. the last one. But then the Tunesium, I mean, although it technically still exists, isn't, you know, I mean, there's still, the, you know, a board, but that's it. Yeah. Um, and they had a physical location downtown. Yeah. And then, and I helped set that up and I built the, built the store, you know, I physically built the store yeah. and, you know, ran it for a couple of years. Um, help them get with their merchant service together and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, but Tunesium had their whole thing was they got the space because yeah. they were nonprofit. They had a way to get space for free or for less because they were nonprofit and had access to stuff. Like the last one we did was at the August Wilson Center, and you know they were a small nonprofit and so got the small nonprofit rate. Whereas if I said, "Hi, I'm Bill. I run Copacetic Comics. I'd run," I, I would have literally paid something like six to ten times as much for the exact Jeez. same thing because they're funded. And so the funding trickles down to other nonprofits, which is a logical way to do it. It's great. Yeah. And, I mean, and it was, I mean, nobody makes any money off of picks. Like, I never paid myself anything yeah. for running that show. Um, you know, wow. so it was a community support endeavor. You know, and the mission was always free to the public. And the, the exhibition fees were very, very, very modest. I mean, I mean compared to something that was like, the, the, it was the, the cheapest, you could... The most, you know, the, the, the low end entry was between 25 and $35, which is really inexpensive. 
And again, it was yeah, free to the great. public. Um, and there was, we had $1,000 sprout fund for the first year. And other than that, it was all self-sustaining. And that's their seed grant. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But other, you know, besides that, that was completely self-sustaining for the whole. So that, that their $1,000 was a good investment. Yeah, <laughs> it, totally. I mean, it did the, um, yeah, so that was a, you know, I, I mean, you know, we got some really good people in for those. I mean, I thought they were great shows. I mean, they were never massively attended, but they were always in the round of 500 area, you know, yeah. and which is respectable, you know, but for a free show. And are you still traveling to other shows? No, like no, I completely, yeah, I, I don't set up at those. I always go to SBX because yeah. my, my mother still lives in D.C., so it's, you know, it's a win-win. But it's funny, like, comic hubs that you're linked to geographically, like SBX is the largest small press convention right. for comics. And I feel like Pittsburgh now has this really well-known or larger indie comic scene. With yeah, yeah, like well, Frank per capita, I think, you know, considering how small Pittsburgh is as a population center, yeah. you know, per capita, I'd say the only city that might have a higher per capita, you know, comics-making communities in North America is Portland, mm-hmm. you know, because they have a huge number, but Portland is still bigger than Pittsburgh. Yeah. You know, but obviously, like, New York and Chicago and L.A. and San Francisco, except, you know, all have bigger communities, but they're much larger cities. You know? And... When you're looking for for books to bring in to Copacetic, like what are you what are you looking for, comics wise? Well, I mean, I'm looking for things that I think is good. I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's hard. I mean, like I support people that are trying and are doing something. You know, like I, I like aesthetic. You know, I I I can I think I've been in business long enough. I can detect when somebody's working hard, yeah, putting their all and giving their all. And anybody, even if I'm not necessarily like enamored of it, but if I sense they're really working hard on it, you know, I will almost always support it. Um, and then obviously some things that I just like, then I'm prejudiced or have a predilection towards, I will support, yeah. you know, obviously if anybody local, I'll, I'll you know, carry any, anybody local. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I just feel like the, the energy, you can kind of sense or at least I feel I can sense, you know, how hard someone or what kind of energy has gone into the work. And, you know, and, you know, people reach out sometimes, like, you know, again, it's so it's evolved, you know, at the beginning it was real difficult. I had to go to the shows and look and, you know, you know, look for websites and read this thing and try to find things and contact people. But then yeah. over the years, a, there's more distribution people doing small press. I mean, there's like, you know, there's um, old John Parcellino did, you know, revive to spit in half. And then there's birdcage bottom. And then there's Tony, Shenton, who's a rep who reps a lot of small people who sends emails every day, and and then there's um, uh, Floating Worlds in, in, in Portland is you know starting to distribute interesting stuff, you know, and there was Last Gasp, although they just recently stopped, you know, but they also supported and distributed yeah. small press, so there were, you know, definitely a various, peop- you know, one stops where I could find things, and besides getting directly from the creators, but historically we've purchased a huge amount of work directly from either the creator or the publisher you know you know the less middlemen you know the better for everybody you know because they get more you know blah 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 but then it's very time consuming i mean my model of how many different people i've sourced to get the stuff i sell here is so gigantic whereas a regular comic book store has diamond totally and that's it yeah. So like you're looking at all these distributors and all these. It's so different. Plus, I have the books well. distributors, and before I had DVD distributors and CD distributors, but like I DVDs completely collapsed. You know, I don't. So I couldn't 
I mean, I still get contacted occasionally. I think I still even have an account here or there, but <laughs> it's like, it, it, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. You know, it, it just, the market for DVD, it's just too small. You know, I literally was looking recently just to double check, and you know, I still have all my books, and yes, indeed, in the last 10 years, my DVD sales have dropped by over 90%. Wow. You know, it's like I now sell like a roughly 7% of what I sold 10 years ago. Yeah. Which is crazy. I mean, it's completely. I used to sell DVDs every single day, and now I look at the books. There sometimes will be a month go by, and I don't even sell one. Yeah. Which is totally insane. Yeah. yeah so. That's crazy. Um, so I was thinking a lot about your store and. And Copacetic has this local node, like starting up in 2001, the physical location in Squirrel Hill, which is also when I came to CMU. Oh, that so same lot, exact year. Yeah, yeah. That's oh, funny because this guy Yaka was here yesterday, and he came in 2001 also. Oh, cool. He went to Pitt then. Yeah, so like a lot of what I was seeing at, at Copacetic helped to really shape what I wanted to do with like with my first zines. Right. So getting exposure to to local zines and local comics through through your store, and then. Being able in 2005, I think, when we first released our first scene, being able to be carried by you and be able to come it's back. The, it's the loop, that. yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's this great way to support Positive the local. Loop, yeah. yeah. To be like a such a big supporter of the local scene, but also for the local creators like myself at the time to see what other people were doing. Um, it seems like you have this. Uh, well, that's obviously, well, you're the perfect example of what I'm trying to do, you know, is to create, like, again, like, you know, comics are just like obviously I've been doing it my whole life. So, but you know, they're, you know, in 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 media studies terms, it's like comics has the lowest possible barrier to entry. Uh-huh. You know, like you got a pencil, you got a quarter to go to Kinko's. Like you can make a zine. <laughs> you know, like oh, there. You know, like a, you know, like anyone can do it. There's yeah. zero barrier to entry. I mean, and people are like, well, but the internet and blogs, yeah, but you still have. To, I mean, you still have to have a computer. I mean, you could technically do it, like go to the library and do it for yeah, absolutely yeah. nothing in theory. Sure. But I mean, but figuring out how to like set up a, a blogger account or whatever. Yeah, but I mean, but then the zine like... thing again. When I was doing it, you know, obviously the internet. I'm, you know, my career in comics is roughly bifurcated, although it's past now. But I mean, I had 20 years before the internet and 20 years yeah. after the internet. So I have, you know, the internet comes into being almost exactly midpoint in my career. Although now, I could say that exactly like two years ago. Yeah. But now it's. And more every year is more post-internet existing larger in this post yeah, world. but so my perspective is a little bit different because I have such a longevity in it and so like my uh, uh, I don't want to say like my you know I, I don't know if it's political approach but my you know the, the, the view I have of comics as being a you know popular art form a more democratic art form yeah. that you know and so like I'm just out there anybody can just wander in discover it like you know then you could do it you know, again, and I'm, I think my sensibility was somewhat informed, you know, in the whole the punk aesthetic, like with the, the Hernandez brothers all, you know, said the same thing. Like, they realized, like, oh, I can punk, you know, they were longtime comic fans. Yeah. But then punk told them, well, I don't have to do, you know, a superhero. I can do whatever I want. Like, I can do my own life. I can express my own self. You know, that was sort of what the punk is like, that kind of revelation, like, I don't have to follow the money. I don't have to, like, make a hit record. Yeah. I just want to you know, be who I am, you know, share my, myself, you know, and, and again, that also goes back to just like folk art, which, you know, when I started doing comics, I kind of re- realized that 
on some no. element, you know, in terms of American capitalist society, comics are like, are structurally a folk art to some degree yeah. in the way you would think of like a folk tale or, you know, you know, pre-industrial civilizations, you know, that imperative, that drive, that need that, you know, is embodied in comics to some degree, I think. You know, I, you know, again, I, I sort of evolved my opinion of that. Going, you know, if you study anthropology or anything like that, and and you study art history, you know, and it, you kind of realize it. Just like, for example, like so much famous classical music was classic, elite, aristocratic, high culture. Going like, oh, that local folk dance is amazing. I will set it as a symphony, or I'll yeah. set it as a string quartet. And now, you know, but so much of classical music is sort of sourced from you know, you know, the, I don't want to say, you know, in a class sense, you know, the, you know, but from, a, you know, the sub, sub, submissive, submissive class or whatever, the, you know, the, and is co-opted by the dominant class and made permanent and given imprimatur of high culture. And, and of course, in comics that happened in the 60s with pop art. Yeah. You know, there was like, look, you know, I mean, the most famous being Roy Lichtenstein, but, you know, but then Warhol and so many others, you know, like then like they, they recognize that comics were a folk culture or were yeah. an aspect of American identity and in this way and, and then that became like a kind of a battleground you know then Raw was trying to take it back in the 80s because the 80s was this blow up at the New York art market where it became super about money yeah. and then so and then I think then you know with Art Spiegelman and, and Francois and then their whole cadre of people that they put around them you know, like Gary Panter in particular um you know, said, you know, well, like, we can, you know, comics can be, you know, you know, like, high art or whatever. I mean, yeah. again, this, these are all just terms that are applied, and, and so much of how we see art is inextricably connected to class, that Absolutely. in a way that people are not generally fully conscious of. I mean, I think people are to some degree, but it's inextricable. I mean, like, how, you know, various forms of art are valorized or not valorized or you know seen is through a lens that's class-based and, and and that's just a you know it's just a fact and um and so like i always like i was you know always felt a strong uh, uh, uh alignment with comics because of it's being i felt it was like a, you know an american art form you know like yeah. you know, like the you know like spiegelman famously said you know the bastard offspring of art and commerce you know <laughs> it, it it you know brings together all you know and it's organic and it was, you know, initially done, you know, just like film, obviously there's a million parallels between comics and film, it's endless. Um, but, you know, there was for-profit, but then you had the whole auteur where the people who were like, yeah, I know film's a business, I know comics a business, but I love it, and I'm gonna express myself through this medium and at the same time make a buck for the people, for the company, yeah. and those are the films that stand the test of time, and those are the comics that stand the test of the time where the creator is invested in the work, even though it's a commercial work. And then Crumb, you know, for all his flaws, you know, was the guy who just saw, like, the comic book as an organic work of art. Like, when he did, like, Zap, you know, where he just drew every line and yeah. just said, like, look, this is a work of art that I made, and it wasn't for a company. I made it for myself. I understand the comic book is an art form, you know, yeah. and, like, you know, that changed everything, you know. I mean, like, no one had, I mean, other people were doing this and that, but, like, it was clear, like, that was the you know the the, the uh, like a turning point where people were like oh like the comic book itself 
is an art form. And it's interesting, you know, because then, like, Danny Dow, like, he was a big champion of the Harry Who, or Chicago, and they were, like, painters, you know, but then, and sculptors, and that, but then they also, their catalogs were comics. And so they were kind of in the perfect, it's so interesting, you know, they're known as the Chicago Imagists, because, like, on the West Coast, Rose Crumb was the comic books, and on the East Coast was pop. Yeah. which was the paintings and then Chicago in the middle was like half and half I just kind of <laughs> cracks me up that the geography kind of works yeah um, so that was another thing that people are really beginning to appreciate and I think Dan gets a lot of credit for that um, or should get a lot of credit for it uh, that you know they're you know a good you know way to help you know navigate the relationship between you know the more populist democratic aspect of comics and the more you know elitist or you know high culture of, uh, of uh, fine art or what have you. I mean, yeah. Again, it doesn't have to be that way. And all these, a lot of these battles are, you know, are just grounded in class perspective that people are, yeah, totally. you know, they're trying to argue like one's better than the other for this or that, you know, the superior for various aesthetic reasons. And it's like, well, yeah, but, you know, you've got, <laughs> you know, there's the class perspective is, is, is informing all your judgments. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, so... Anyway, I think comics are, you know, are, are, you know, again, I think very a more democratic form, you know, and I mean, in a popular, a populist in the in the best sense. I mean, yeah, I absolutely agree. And talking before we started recording, we were talking about uh, my students and teaching them how to make their first yeah, right, exactly. books. And same thing with the I actually teach a comics course as well. And as soon as I show them, like, it doesn't take that much. You make some marks on a piece of paper bring it over to our Risograph or our photocopier. They both they have access to both, and they just have a hundred some copies of something. Right. And right. it's it's super quick. Or yeah, and then you get a you get a like an uh, an endorphin rush or whatever. Yeah. Like I made this. You know? Yeah, the amount of people that line up at the other end, like the butt end of the Risograph as paper shooting out of it. Right. And they just get all super excited and are right. recording it and Instagramming it. And right. like it's it's addictive. <laughs> I feel like, oh, I see, like, they're recording the printing. Yeah. That's funny. All right, well, yeah, I mean, but, well, again, it's because it also, seeing the physical repetition of the image helps your brain understand in a way that it's just so difficult to grasp when it's on the internet. Yeah. You know, and it's just, it's immaterial. And I'm like, yeah, like, I got a million views or a thousand views or whatever. And it's just like, it's... I mean, it's just because of our brains, you know, like our whole, we've evolved to, you know, to perceive physical reality. And when it's, everything's electronic and digital, it's literally, I mean, it's interesting because the term grasp is from your hand. Yeah. So it's difficult to grasp something that's totally abstract and digital and electronic. And it's like, of course it's difficult to grasp. And that's one of the funny things I find with, with artists in general and art students in particular is that any of these things you're talking about just through words or saying like you know visualize this thing or trying to get someone to understand what something is just by talking about it it seems like artists are really bad at visualizing what that is they need to actually see it right and well that's all very interesting i mean again you can talk about this endlessly the theories of art you know just because then so much of art after the 60s i guess began to dematerialize Mm -hmm. for a whole bunch of different reasons like we would have like the ultimate was like back then the happenings like this is the ultimate art it's just it's a moment in time, then it's yeah, gone. It's that's art. Ephemeral. Yeah, and so like it's like yeah, and so you know it doesn't you know painting is just a way to make you know it's all about the money you know and, and so all those things are valid, but of course, and um, you know but then what's the institutional framework that's enabling all these immaterial 
works to happen if you know where's the money coming from what's going yeah. on you know who's you know backing it blah 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 I mean it, it can't, you know it's incredibly complicated um, to shift gears a little bit what are what are you seeing locally come through the store like if you were to describe the local Pittsburgh scene within small press and comics how would you describe it well, specifically, I mean, obviously, there's some people who've really emerged. I mean, like Frank's always been, you know, because like, you know he's been doing it the longest, and he's had major books. But now, you know, Ed Pisker is like world famous. Oh, yeah. You know, Tom Scioli, Jim Rugg are all, you know, major, you know. And then there's other people that have done, you know, like Dave Walker and others who are, you know, local, you know, the Gregory Wright people who, you know, do work for higher work but are respected, you know, in the professional comics community. There's, and then there's the small press self-published. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was definitely, you know, like a bunch of people came out of Carnegie Mellon for sure. You know who were doing some you know a whole variety uh, of work and there was interesting like, you know you know some especially women like you know Lizzie Solomon and you know, Christina Lee you know mm-hmm. you know you know Lizzie's one of our biggest selling creators we have um, you know but, but she's like a you know multi talented you know, she does you know sculpture and printmaking and jewelry yeah. and other things and Juliax came out of and Juliax well. yeah and that one Chris Cornwell but they're both yeah. gone I mean you know. I mean, Juliax went to. I mean, she went on to do all these other things. I mean, like yeah, I just saw her in Amsterdam. Music. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so she, I mean, she was always had other interests in in addition to comics. So that's the interesting thing is that a lot of people came out of art school, and comics was one of the practices that they decided to engage in, which of course is fascinating for me because it's like that's so novel because like you know my day like that never happened like all the people who are older like dan clouds with like the you know and the people like i tried to do comics when i was in art school and they they thought you know i was an idiot and a juvenile yeah. delinquent for you know but so that finally <laughs> has changed you know and um you know over the course of 20 30 years um and then there's people who are just local like you know like nate mcdonough somebody who's like produced like you know the most work of anyone in pittsburgh probably he's yeah. done he just draws all day every day you know, and he's somebody who's just a working guy, you know, and just doing comics, and he's just using it as mode of self-expression, and he's just, that's his thing, and then, you know, like Andy Scott did that Andromeda, which ran for years, and was, you know, really helped coalesce a community, but then, you know, he couldn't do that anymore. Yeah, he tried to get a grant, and it was turned down, and that still mystifies huh. me, like, I don't know why, but, you know, this is just to do the right thing, I just couldn't say, but, um, you know, but there's a great, I mean, there's more diversity, I mean, in, 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 in local comics making for sure I mean yeah there's people you know you know there's a like Asia Bay is probably my most prominent you know, you know creator you know young black woman and there's other people you know the Daniel Patton and Hugo Rose who sell some of their comics and then there's um, I mean then Mont was somebody who wrote with with, with, with with Asia and there's you know there's definitely others I mean and there's you know so there is you know growing and then Juan is been a big instrument, Juan Fernandez. Of, yeah. You know, helping. He helped with picks. He's helped with comics workbook. He's doing the Pittsburgh Comics Club. He has runs wow. the Pittsburgh Comics Salon. He's doing a book club at the Carnegie Library. Huh. That's great. Um. So that's you know helping bring in yet another generation. You know, because I've been doing this long enough now that you know people have come and gone. Yeah. And so now there's like we're trying to get, you know, the you know newer people. Um coming in and been again I mean partly I, I have to say like I'm so much older than everyone now you know there's a little bit you know so like somebody's coming in and it's like I'm you know I'm 20 or 23 and like yeah you know, I'll go to, you know it's like I think I have a feeling that 
you know, some of these, you know, like I know there's like, you know, there's, you know, the galleries and scene in, in, in Garfield, like some of those yeah. places, they might be having, you know, selling, making comics or doing something comics and print related. It, these various spaces that I might not even know about, you know, and so that I feel at some point, I mean, I hope, you know, because for a long time it was like this was the one, you know, Phantom obviously sold some yeah. local work too, um, for sure, but, you know, that, that maybe you know the baton you know other places will now also you know big idea probably sell some local comics and i know these all local zines you yeah. know which i do as well and so that um that may more people may go to you know other spaces to to do it you know i might you know i might be like the old guy now you know <laughs> i mean and so um yeah, I mean, I wish it would be great. You know, I mean, I would the more, you know, I would certainly be wonderful if other other people would support, and, you know, and, and, yeah. and, 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 and provide a showcase for all the, because I'm sure that there's new people doing work that I don't even know about, you know. And, um, but that's all great. The last question I wanted to ask you was about uh, location. So, Copacetic started in School Hill. We're now in Polish Hill and we're above a coffee shop and a record store in what is a pretty amazing building. So I guess for you, like, what was the difference between the Squirrel Hill location and this new location in Polish Hill? And what's interesting about this, about this building? Well, I mean, like, uh, you know, place? I've been driven by overhead costs because like, yeah, like, I have such a niche business, you know, so the place yeah. I went in Squirrel Hill was a super bizarre location, but it worked because it was really inexpensive and low stress. and I, and help me grow my concept and get on the internet, which was you know close to cost free. I mean, very minimal, you know, for a website. Um, and I learned all that web design myself at the beginning, but then I subsequently wow. had help. And my, you know, John Fail, who was a Pittsburgher who now lives in Finland, Helsinki, has you know really was you know brought my web presence into the you know twenty first century. Yeah, because <laughs> I was stuck in. The, I think I all I knew was rudimentary HTML. Um, but, and so that was, you know, I really liked that location. It was kind of funky in Squirrel Hill. And then I, but it was way too small. It was just like, I was losing my mind how small it was. And then literally, the, the, I mean, I was already looking at other locations in Squirrel Hill. Like, and I was still thinking I was going to stay there. But then Michael Siemens, who was the mind cure, who was the original r r record store, said, Bill, you should come to this building that you know we're doing in Polish Hill and you know this building was yeah, okay. was set up you know the, the the primary the raison d'etre for this was the coffee shop the people who set up this building really wanted a coffee shop because they felt that was the big addition to the neighborhood that was needed was a coffee shop and they yeah. were right I think I mean and um and then I think they really were just initially planning the second third floor to be apartments because that's what they were but code Updates, you know, you know how there's a grandfather. I mean, the building was was empty; it was uninhabited when they purchased it. Um, but then they discovered, belatedly, that the code restrictions to have apartments above a place that served food were too were cost prohibitive for them to meet. And oh, so then well. they decided, well, like, okay, we'll do them businesses. And then Michael had knew the people who bought the building, and so he said, yeah, yeah, I'll totally do this I was wanting to open a store anyway and Michael was a customer of mine you know at Copacetic you know a regular and and he was saying you should check this out why don't you come look at it you know and like and 
you know, ultimately, you know, it was because of him that I moved here. Yeah. And it was a good call. And, um, and so, uh, and then of course, then there's the synergy of having popular culture above a coffee shop. Uh-huh. And, um, and I think it all worked out. I mean, but again, for me, my customer were going to follow me wherever I was for the most part. And it's not, you know, I definitely in Squirrel Hill, I had a lot of just random walk in Squirrel Hill traffic. Yeah. And then it was, those people would more often buy books and CDs and DVDs than comics. Yeah. Because that's just the general population. And then I would ha- show the comics and share the comics and create and help all create that vibe. But so like that walk in traffic for, you know, was lost moving here. Because, I mean, the people in Polish Hill, I definitely have, you know, a decent, you know, number of, of local Polish Hill customers for sure. But it's a very different customer base than Squirrel Hill, yeah. you know, and so the you know, the types of books, and the types of music, and the, and the you know and the CDs and stuff that I sold there, kind of to people from the neighborhood, you know, ended, you know, and so then I've adapted a little bit. But again, the vast majority is to my core copacetic clientele, which exists in the city, in the region, and online. And you know, we have enough of a presence, and have been around long enough now. So plenty of people. I mean, we have a ton of out-of-town customers, you know, who just, A, people who buy from us out of town and then decide to visit Pittsburgh, and one of the factors is the code of copacetic. Yeah. You know, it's generally, and then, of course, there's a lot of people who just come from out of town who have heard of copacetic and just want to visit the shop. And then there's people who come from out of town who, because we have the biggest web presence, we just come up at the searches, and they just come here. And a lot of those people are then like, wait, where's the comics? They think we're a regular comic <laughs> store. But then I always just send them to Phantom, because they're yeah. like, you now with the age of the phone, they just say, 411 South Grace Street. And they're like, okay. It's like 1.4 miles. All right, thanks. You know, they yeah. just go down to Phantom. Um, you know, because obviously, you know, Phantom's a great store. Um, but, um, but, yeah, some people, you know, we have enough of a reputation now that definitely people come from out of town to visit the shop and to yeah. come here in person it's, you know, so that you know, so we have a, I mean so that's what I'm saying it wouldn't really matter where we were you know at all and so this is a good place you know it's very cost effective yeah well I love this lo- this location and the, the appeal of it as well I love the Squirrel Hill one yeah the Squirrel Hill some Same people were like I can't believe you're leaving that's such because like you sit on the bench you know it's just like shady yeah. and calm and all that but you know I mean, obviously you can't have it all, but you know, this is still amazing. Yeah, this the is porch a great and, atmosphere. Yeah, yeah the yeah, porch outside. Yeah, yeah. You're always listening pretty, to good music. Right. Yeah. So it's definitely a chill vibe, and you know, uh, it's still amazing compared. I mean, again, you know, like in the thing, some people think I'm like insane. Like, how can you have a bookstore you're not on the ground level? You know, how do people? But like, <laughs> again, like my clientele is so specialized. Like, if I was in a big location, people would come in. Like, I don't get it. You know, like. Yeah, you know, as people, I say, why don't you advertise? You get the advertising because, like, you know, I, you know, I had tried it. You know, and the people who come from the ad, they just don't get it. You know, like you have to have someone tell you what it is who you know. I mean, word of mouth is the only one that really works. Yeah, or you just discover it through your interest constellation, and you have a, you know, a gravitational affinity towards it. You know, because just the, you know, the average person just you know, we're just too different from a, you know, it's just not a. Like people have trouble understanding it. Like I don't get this story. What is it? I mean, a lot of people come here. I still have it every, you know, on a reg, you know, not every single day, but you know, certainly more than once a week. You know, 
you can just tell people come in and are just trying to figure it out. Yeah, just trying to make sense of the space. Yeah, what, just like what I just tell, like what they just and then they just like they drive and they just like that's just too weird to leave, you know. <laughs> which is interesting, you know, which is fine, you know. I mean, but it's also interesting in a way, you know. Just, oh, yeah. It's like a different language or something. Like I don't speak this language. Well, Bill, thanks so much for taking the time oh, to my, talk with me. I know the store is like my pleasure. about to open. Yeah, um, any second. Or like, yeah, yeah but the, and there's definitely, I've been looking around, there's piles of things that I want to leave this store with. Right, so, well, I guess if anybody listening wants to, who's from out of town, you can go to copesetcomics.com and see <laughs> us, our online presence. It's not quite the same, but then there's a ton of little funky websites. Like I still maintain like the Copesetic Gallery and then yeah. there's the Daily Davis and there's all the old Ben archives. They're all accessible. Oh, wow somewhere through that site. It's, and under Copacetic Universe, there's all these other okay. sites. I didn't realize that that much. Yeah. There's not, yeah, there's not, it's not extensive. Yeah.